So we're looking at today humans in theology. Last week we talked about humans in science. And the kind of basic understanding of all this is that nobody agrees. So you really have to make an argument for what you believe and why you believe it in terms of what is a human being? When does, when does human life begin? Not only at kind of the micro level that deals with our issues today, but at the macro level historically. Like when did that thing, if evolution actually took place, that being become a human being, uh, you know, how, you know, how do you begin to categorize it? Is it, is it when they became homo sapien? I don't even know how you distinguish a homo sapien from a homo erectus or whatever was before. Right. So, um, but we want to look at theologically what, what is a human being? And I'd like to get through a second chapter today too, which is called the error of polygenesis. And uh, I'm, I'm going to basically make a couple of statements about that and then not dwell on that too long. So um, let me just read a little bit of this. And uh, I know Daniel and Lisa are there. And um, oh, this was what I was forgetting. Uh, we want to uh, do a meal train for Cameron and Hannah with the birth of their baby James. I've been meaning to announce that. So if I don't say this in church, somebody yell and say, meal train. Can I count on someone to do that? Okay. Um, so I need to, I need to, I'll probably set one up through like the website, like the meal train website, whatever that is, uh, probably mealtrain.com or something anyway. Um, but if y'all don't do the internets these days, uh, then, you know, let us know and we'll figure out a good day to, to bring them a, a little something to eat as they've got a two year old and a little baby at home. So I trust James is doing well, uh, Hannah and or Cameron, whoever's behind the, uh, the camera there, but. Um, so, oh, okay. Very good. Very good. All right. Um, aww. there you go. That's James. Yeah. James, brother of Jesus and brother of Malagra. So, okay. So, we're talking about humans in theology. So the argument is, well, what is a human being? Because really the question is, again, this book is a thought experiment looking at the idea that evolution could have taken place, but also uh, Adam and Eve being created by God in the garden, de novo, essentially out of nothing, out of the ground, by God directly 6,000 years ago. That it could also be true, that there's really nothing to, su to suggest it could not be true. Um, and so then you kind of have the question of, well, what do we do then if there are people outside the garden? What does that mean? I just said it, right? It's, it's almost impossible to avoid. Like, there are people outside the garden. Well, were they people? What do we mean? I mean, biologically, were they people? Theologically, were they people? What, what do we mean by that? And when, you know, did they become fully human beings, um, you know, by virtue of their... Uh, by virtue of Adam and Eve, you know, breeding with those outside the garden, and then everyone from that line of descent is a full human being, and that they now possess the image of God. Thank you. And, um, you know, so, so that's what we're going to kind of look at. So let me just read a couple of, I think, summary statements to kind of get the ball rolling. Again, the um, author, Joshua, I thought I knew is Swamidas, I want to get that right. He, he begins by basically saying, look, there are a wide range of views on this subject. All right, no surprise there. He said, I did notice one common understanding, though it is not unanimous. Many seem to equate human, quote-unquote, in theology with the image of God. This is certainly a valid position, but we're not limited to this understanding. 
I will present an alternative in the coming chapters. But the question still is, what is the image of God? You know, the Bible doesn't really say, so the image of God is this, this, and this. So the question is for us then, well, what does that mean? So he makes he's going to make four main points. He says, there is a range of ways the image of God is understood, giving us a window into the difficulty of defining human in theology. Number two, there are nonetheless two major approaches to defining human beings, I'm sorry, to defining humans using image of God, and they are structuralist and vocationalist. Three, affirming monogenesis, there are definitions of human in theology where all people in history arise from genealogical descent from Adam and Eve within a larger population. And then four, supporting this definition of monogenesis, speculation about interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others is common among creationists. Okay, so mainly what I want to talk about are, are these different understandings of the image of God as vocational or structural. I think those are that's actually really interesting to kind of think about. And probably I end up somewhere in between. And structuralist basically looks at kind of the nature of a being, the nature of a person. So it's this, your very structure as a human being is made by God in such a way that you're made in his image like organically or ontologically or, you know, the, it's the nature of your being. Um, and the other, the vocational understanding is sort of how you represent God in this world. You know, the sorts of things that you do, not just like good works or something like that, but by virtue of the fact that you're a, a co-producer or a producer or a co-creator, those are all words that are kind of disputed, but um, that you have dominion, for example, that would be a major, you have dominion over the world. That would be a major vocational element. Okay. And then actually there's a third, which is relational. Uh, this is, and I'm going to read it because this is, I'm not very familiar with it, but apparently this is Luther's view, view. The image of God is understood as a certain sort of relationship we have with God, or perhaps with each other in community. And this is best, this is perhaps the least common view now, but it, it is put forward by Luther, Calvin, and Karl Barth. Um, let me read his specific language instead of me shooting off the cuff on that. He says, in the substance understanding, the image of God is understood as the set of attributes that we have in common with God. Different theologians will emphasize different attributes, such as human uniqueness or exceptionality, rational souls, language, and universal rights and dignity. The substance view is sometimes understood synonymously with structuralism, which I'll describe in a moment, or, and it may be the most common among philosophers. In the vocational or functional, functional or regency understanding, the image of God is understood as a God-given calling or role, perhaps to represent him in this world. This understanding sometimes is connected to the function of government, and it is the dominant understanding among exegetes. Exegetes, that is to say, they're, they're interpreting scripture. So you kind of have philosophers on one hand— <clears throat> You know, there's dangerous philosophers all the time. And then you've got biblical theologians. And it's not to say that they're necessarily like at odds in every way, but they maybe sort of emphasize these two, two sides of the coin. That's kind of how I think about it. Because um, generally speaking, I don't think that the one side would like reject the other wholeheartedly. I think they would simply say that when I say the image of God, it, what it really means is, is this. 
So I think when you hear things like rational souls, language, rights, dignity, I mean, that's kind of the language of our founding as a nation, right? That's what we appeal to, that there is something about human beings that puts them in a position so that they have inalienable rights. Uh, you know, something that government cannot take away because they're given by God, they're given by the creator. And um, so since the government doesn't grant them, God grants them, the government cannot take them away either. It's pretty a revolutionary idea, really, in many Kevin? respects. Yes, sir. I sent you a question on chat. If you could take a look at that, please. Oh, sure. Uh, are you asking when did people become human as genetic description? Or are you asking when they developed virtues? Is the soul a description of being human? And is it possible that people in modern times have di diminished souls, less human than more virtuous people? That's a good question. So let me answer. Um, so really the debate is about, is a human a genetic description? And so some people would say yes, and some people would say no. And that in science, that might be a demarcation that somebody would say, well, when the genes got to this place, then they became what we would call a human. But I don't think anyone can really say when that is. They certainly couldn't pin it down to any two people who are, who are common ancestors. Uh, but what you see in Adam and Eve is the fullness of humanity. So, you know, that's why it's always safe to, for there to be Adam and Eve. Um, I'm not saying when they develop virtues per se, but I think if you look at, say, the structuralist understanding, it does talk about something like universal rights and dignity. Well, if that's right, then that implies things like virtue and vice. You know, if someone has a right, then it implies that it would be wrong to violate those rights because those person possess those, those rights. Um, and then soul, well, that would be debated. In fact, Evan and Eric, I think, are to a degree going to debate that very question because Christians don't. I hate to keep saying that people don't agree, but um, Christians don't agree on... Um, you know, when a, when a human being maybe receives a soul, or if I can summarize the argument, uh, basically is a soul, is a human being a body with a soul, or is a human being a body and a soul? Is that fair to say so far? Okay. So, because um, then you can get into questions of, um, you know, do souls are, you know, are, are if, if, if a human being is a soul that also has a body, then that does make the body uh, more expendable. At least it could, you know. So like Gnosticism essentially argues that, you know, the body is worthless, uh, but the soul is everything. And, and Christianity, I would argue, doesn't argue that. It argues that the body is also worthwhile, which is why, you know, Paul says, for example, if you uh, are with a prostitute, you are, you know, um, you're degrading your own temple, in essence, you're, because you become one with that person. And so what you do with your body actually matters a great deal. In fact, I think that's throughout the Old Testament. In fact, the cleanliness laws and <laughs> the sacrificial laws, I think, I think um, as I've said many times, I feel like a broken record. But, you know, when we argue about homosexuality and those sorts of issues in the church, uh, we really need to make it very simple. What we're arguing against is the, the defamation of the, the temple of God that he has given us, that there are things that we can do with our body that are sacrilegious in their nature by the very essence of the thing we're doing. Um, that's the best argument against certain practices. 
So, um, so, but, but other people could argue, well, what you do with your body doesn't matter. Like Evan gave the example last night, we had a dinner with some friends last night and he said, and I'm only talking a lot, Evan, instead of just giving you the mic. Cause I, I just, I need to move the mic down. Um, so I want to, I want to give you full credit, but, um, you gave the example of, um, oh crud. There's something about Gnosticism in the body. Um, oh, you can have. Yeah, you can cheat on your wife, but as long as you don't love her. Don't love the other person. Don't love the other person or other people. Because sin is only with the soul. Sin is with the soul. It's not something you do with your body. Your body can't sin. Yeah. So to answer the question, Charles, is a soul a description of a of being human? Well, it depends on it depends on who you ask. And then the other question of that is. It depends on what you mean by soul, because some people argue that there are different types of souls that different that different animals also have souls, lesser souls, different souls, but sort of souls nonetheless. So, um, but I would argue. So I would probably say that having a soul may not necessarily be a distinguishing hallmark of a human being, but possessing a human soul would, which is I know circular thinking, but. There's, it's kind of unavoidable because you're talking about the being of something. Having a human soul is what it means to be a human being. Um, and so then the question is, well, what is a human soul? Well, that would get back to virtues very quickly. Okay. Yeah. Then, you would say it would get back to virtues very quickly. In case that didn't come on the mic, he's saying, the more virtuous you are, the more human you are, and and um, growing in virtue would be growing as into the best human being that you could be. That's Evan, could you ask Evan a question for me, please? He'll hear you. Go ahead. Okay. When did this concept of virtues really begin? And perhaps were virtues around in very early times, but people didn't recognize them as being virtues, and they weren't cataloged until much later. Um, how, how early would you say that virtues became a thing? People talked about it. Oh, you know. man. People were talking about virtues since at least 500 BC, and that seems to be not even just like just the Greeks, but the Indians and the <clears throat> Chinese were doing it all at the same time. Everybody at about 500 BC. So he says about 500 BC. Now, remember, one of the arguments in favor of in favor of this book, or in favor of young earth creationism for that matter, is that you basically see civilization as we know it begin very recently, in the last several thousand years. Um, and, and so that might be an example of that, is that as civilization progresses, people use, and of course, we don't have many records before 500 BC. So we don't actually, we can't say for sure what was going on. But, um, but the point is that by then they were talking about virtue. Well, you would only talk about virtue if you have a sufficient understanding of the value of a human person. If it's, if it's just about who has the bigger, you know, bone to kill the neighboring tribes with, you know, that's, there's no real discussion there. Well, Evan, may I ask you a question now? Sure. This goes back to the question we had about four weeks ago that I had for you in uh -oh. reference to this concept of the elect. And that is, is it possible that in turn, that there are people that with diminished souls that may be considered as not part of the elect? In other words, when the elect was spoken of, apparently they, from the beginning of time, 
they were not selected as the elect, but is it possible that they were people who, or they are people who are born in the world, but not of the elect because they have either diminished soul or no soul. No, I wouldn't say that. I think that could take you down a path of making distinctions between human beings that, so let's just say that that was possible. We would have no way of knowing it and to speculate on it would lead us down a path of creating humans and subhuman categories. So, um, so I would say no. Now there are, you know, there's language like vessel, you know, God made vessels for destruction. Um, see, I, I don't think it, okay. If the non-elect are not made in the image of God, I'd have to think this through, but in general, I would say they're not really worthy of God's judgment. You know, God judges people based on their their value, and they have value because they're made in the image of God, because they're a human being. I mean, I don't think God is going to judge my dog, Gus. He should, but I don't think he will, because he's not made in the image of God. He's not worthy of that. And I think we would be in dangerous territory if we started to say, um, you know. Now, that said, I believe that because all people are made in the image of God, they know the law of God. It is written onto their hearts. And when they willfully disobey, they rightfully incur God's judgment. And and Romans 1 talks about God giving them over to their passions. So like the worst thing that could ever happen to you would be that God would be like, okay, you can have it your way. That would literally be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Okay. And that's exactly what Romans 1 says that God gave them over to their lustful passions, okay? And so, um, so, you know, but I wouldn't connect that to a question of the elect because we're ignorant of the elect. And so I would simply look at it a question of, so virtue or uh, a question of um, how we live, how we love our neighbor, how we love God. I'd put it in that category, Um but let me, but let you, me, yeah. Would you say that in turn, the soulfulness of a person, someone who has a good soul, is directly related to or understood by how many of the 12 virtues they have? Or to what extent they have the 12 virtues? I would say no. I mean, I understand what, what Evan's saying, and I guess I'd, I'd have to think about it. You know, I, I would agree that I ideally sort of in principally that, that there is an ultimate standard of what it is to be human, and we see that in Jesus Christ. And we are called to be more Christ-like. I mean, it would be foolish to, to argue otherwise. So in a sense, you could argue that the more lo- like Christ we are, the more fully human we are. Um, however, I think that being made in the image of God is a, an ontological imprint that that you cannot take from a person even if and when they commit evil deeds. I think, I mean, that's really getting into Catholic territory, you know, of mortal and venial sins and the need for confession before we can, re- you know, receive communion. Um, see, I, I think that we, we you, you have to have a couple of uh, bedrock statements that are that are irrevocable, and one of which would be that to be made in the image of God is, is can that image can never be taken away, no matter what you do, no matter how much you degrade yourself, right? Uh, if you're if you spend 50 years in a brothel, you know, and absolutely degrade yourself in the worst possible ways imaginable, you can't lose the image of God. We believe that is part of 
I mean, it might be so far removed that you've long since forgotten, but I don't even think that. I think that person 50 years after being in the brothel still has a voice in their head saying, this is wrong. You should probably leave now and go get a job. Well, Evan, may I ask you this? Yeah, and this, then Evan had a question. Well, this, this comment, this um, verse made in the image of God, does that mean made in the literally physical image of God? Or is it made in the concept of yeah. God? Meaning, it de no, it definitely does not mean that that uh, uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with our human form. You know, so I mean, we could be in the form of elephants, uh, but of course, elephants can't speak, can they? That's the oh well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the way that we speak, but. <laughs> But in, at the same time, like honeybees can tell their like friends, like oh, the, the, the nectar is like five miles that way. Hang a left after the oak tree. And, you know, that's kind of crazy. That, so thing, things, there is communication in nature. But um, so, so, no, I mean, that's really the debate. That's really what this chapter is about. And so, no, it's not, it's not about our physical form. That would put us in danger, right? If, well, what about a person who loses their legs in battle? Are they, are they less human? You know, and we, we'd, we'd certainly say no to that uh, or a certain born with mental uh, faculty loss. Now, as, as we say that, I mean, again, this gets back to what we talked about last week. I mean, I, I mean, in, in like, I don't know, Sweden or something last year, I see these articles every now and then. But like there were like three babies born with Down syndrome in Sweden last year, and they hail this as a great success. They're eliminating Down syndrome from the human population. Of course, they, they do this because they find out the baby's gonna have Down syndrome and then they abort the baby. And so this is going on in America too, not at a 99% clip, but at a 60% clip or something to that degree. Um, so thank you prenatal testing. I mean, that's one of the unintended consequences of that, right? Um, so, um, so people really do believe, but that are not Christian, I hope, in any way, I wouldn't say they're Christian. People really do believe that if you are physically less than an ideal human, then, yeah, you're not really a human and you're expendable. I mean, and this is, we've been talking about this forever, you know, like like genetic, uh, you know, designer babies and all this kind of stuff. Um, so that's something we have to push against very hard as Christians. And uh, I hate to tell you, we're losing the fight, you know. Oh, no. So then what is considered hang, as the hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. Evan had a question. Yeah. He's saying Alexander the Great sort of conquered the world to spread Greek blood. I assume Attila the Hun did the same. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. But okay, Charles. Well, last question. Then I have to get back to the book. Well, what is considered as the image of God? I mean, is it a concept? Is it someone who does have all or most all of the 12 virtues? I mean, what is considered as an image of God? Let me, let me, again, let me, let me read some of this because again, there are three schools of thought. There are structuralist, vocationalist, and, and uh, relational. And so these are the answers given through the, through the, you know, millennia on Christian thought of what the, the image of God means. And I think that you can take some of all three. I mean, I think all three speak to the image of God. So I'm just going to cop out and be like, oh, they all sound good. You know, I'm not going to place myself firmly in one camp or the other. I don't see a reason to. 
So for example, uh, Hugh Ross and Fazal Rana of Reasons to Believe pro propound a structuralist understanding. That is the nature of a person, right? Often connecting human uniqueness to the image of God. Uh, William Lane Craig takes that view. The vocationalist exegetes, that's interpreting the Bible, understand the image of God as our role in creation. For example, as stewards of what God made or designated representatives of him in creation. Uh, structuralists would often insist that they too see a vocational component to the image of God. The question clarifies, can one have the biological structure of a human without the vocation of a human? A vocationalist says yes, but a structuralist says no. Okay, in other words, can you have, can you look like a human being, right? And, and um, you know, but not have the vocations that human beings have. And so those two schools give different answers on that. Um, so he says the divide here is between metaphysics on one hand and narrative on the other, systematic theology on one hand and biblical theology on the other. For what it's worth, I am extremely sympathetic to uh, biblical theology over and against systematic theology. Um, I find systematic theology very boring, and um, <laughs> that's not nice to say probably, but it's basically someone's like con concept of theology from beginning to end. Uh, and so you have all these competing <laughs> systematic theologies. I'd rather just know what the Bible says because that's my source of authority anyway. Um, so let me ask this. Let me put this out because this is where it gets. This is where this thought experiment ties in. And Daniel and Lisa, I apologize. I, I want to just try to read a few more things and have y'all come in with what y'all see is most important in this chapter. Um, he says this is on page 110. So we're now we're looking at people outside the garden because that's really the question. Out people outside the garden. We know that Adam and Eve were human. We know that they were made in the image of God. We know that they were given this vocation, and we could argue about their structure as well. But he says everyone outside the garden was biologically human. So that, that's not a question. If evolution took place, then everybody was biologically human, okay? 6,000 years ago. No, no, nobody would deny that if those people existed. With the same biological structure of Adam and Eve, were the biological humans outside the garden uh, the humans of theology as well? Were they theological people or were they just biological people? And so the structuralists tend to say yes, but vocationalists are uncertain. Remember, the structuralists say that you're you're that there's something about you if you're you're in the image of God, uh, um, you know, sort of organically. What you do with it is not as important as sort of how you are made. And um, so again, there isn't a consistent answer on that. Um, so. I'm, let me just say this one thing. So basically, he, he goes on to talk. I'm going to have to summarize quickly, but he talks about um, a Catholic philosopher, Kenneth Kemp. And basically, he proposes, let me just read this paragraph. Um, he says this, For the Christian faithful cannot maintain the thesis which holds that either after Adam there existed on this earth true men who did not take their origin through natural generation from him as from the first parent of all, or that Adam signifies a number of first parents. Now, it is in no way apparent how such an opinion can be reconciled with that which the sources of revealed truth and the documents of the magisterium of the church propose with regard to original sin, which proceeds from a sin actually committed by an individual Adam and which, through generation, is passed on to everyone who is known. What, what is the importance of that? Okay. 
what he's saying is that original sin is passed down from Adam and Eve and from the actual sin he created and from there into their offspring. Okay, so original sin isn't something that just sort of slowly seeps into humanity like the blob from every direction. No, no, it has a it goes to Adam and Eve, and it's their it's 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 all who who follow them genetically or genealogically, I should say, because that's what the whole book is about. And so he's arguing um, that what whoever was outside the garden and whatever they were, biological, theological. To a degree, it doesn't matter. I don't know that he'd say that, but that's how I'm kind of reading it. Because what matters is the fall, and and the consequences of the fall come from Adam and Eve and their and their biological progenitors or whatever. Um, so that's an, that's kind of that's an interesting argument as well. But um, I'm sorry, this has probably been a little bit scattered. Let me just read one more thing. Some object that interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and, and the people outside the garden is bestiality. This objection misunderstands the model. The people outside the garden are not beasts. And, and some people argue that the Nephilim, you hear about in Genesis 6, okay? They're like angels that mate with women. It's kind of a mysterious group of people, and <laughs> there's not agreement upon who the Nephilim are. But some people argue that they're simply people outside the garden. So that's another possibility. Okay, Daniel and Lisa, do y'all have any um, um, any thoughts or any? What did I miss, basically? I I think you you covered that well. I I mean, if I were just to kind of like sum it up in my own words, it. Uh, I mean, I think the the main point is that um, the scientific definition of what a human is and uh, the theological one don't have to be coincident and. Uh, just just like scientists and theologians kind of talk past each other by trying to equate genealogy and genetics, uh, you can kind of have the same situation with the definition of human. Um, and so, I, I, again, I think he's just kind of trying to create space where theologians can explore this topic, and it's largely decoupled from science. Um, know, Lisa, do you want to add anything else? On page 120, he goes through, he has six points about how how different definitions created this uh, antagonism between the two points. Like the, he, you know, it's right after he defines monogenesis and polygenesis on, on page 120. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he kind of gives a historical viewpoint of how these, the, the disagreement came to be like, uh, you know, I'm trying to find, Polygenesis was rejected because it denied universal descent from Adam, thereby rejecting the un unity of humankind, which I think he's arguing, you know, for now. Like, no. Oh, okay. No. Sorry, I, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit. No, 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 yeah. that, that's fine. No, no, that's fine. Yeah, the um, monogenesis, you know, is is is... Let me just read it now because I think it actually clarifies some things. It's an origin by genealogical descent from one couple. That makes sense. Monogenesis. One, we know what mono means. Polygenesis means an origin from a large population, not a single couple. And his argument is that polygenesis actually gives rise to racism because then it sees humans as being these kind of fundamentally different races in different structures and different values therein. 
And so monogenesis actually is the strongest rebuttal uh, to, to racism because basically we, we genetically and genealogically argue that actually human beings are, are come from one couple as early as 6,000 years ago. So the, the, the modernity to which we are all one race um, is, is the best argument against the arguments that were used, including by many in the church, um, you know, in favor of racism, subhuman categories, things of that nature. And um, yeah, and so, um, well, I, I think kind of the, I mean, maybe I should say kind of where I come down on this. Um, you know, I, I believe that to be made in the image of God is most definitely, there is a structural component to it. Um, we have souls. We communicate in a way that's unique. We reason in a way that's unique. We love in a way that is unique. Um, we have value and dignity in a way that is unique. Um, I don't know how to really put my finger on that, but I know that it's true. I know that murder really is wrong. Um, I, I know that to obey the law of God really does make a difference because of the value of human beings. I also believe that we're called to do certain things. So, so the first, by the way, was, is more of the structuralist point of view. It's kind of how you're made. And so the vocationalist says, well, to be, to be made in the image of God means you're sort of given certain jobs to do, you know, to, to have dominion over the earth. Well, I most certainly think that's true, too, uh, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion, to, um, to and, and, and that includes all kinds of things. Good government, uh, that would be a part of it as well, uh, and virtuous, virtuous living, um, that would be a part of it too. Then relational, well, that's a part of it too. That would be the third. Uh, I believe that we relate to God in a way that giraffes do not relate to God. But I believe that the natural world in its own way sort of knows that God exists. That might be a weird view that I have, but you know, sort of Paul talks about all of creation groaning for the coming again of Christ. And I think even my dog knows that something is broken. Somehow deep down, he knows that. That's maybe a really dumb thing to believe, but um, you know, I, uh, but, but the fact is my dog does not pray to God. Um, he doesn't. And my dog shouldn't receive the Eucharist either, by the way. Um, so, uh, but, you know, but so I, I believe we relate to God in a different way. So I don't really see a need to pick and choose between those distinctions. Um, the, 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 the bottom line is that the Bible doesn't, it says that we're made in the image of God, but then you don't find a, a, a chapter or a book of the Bible that says, no, this is everything that it means. It's sort of something maybe we discover. Um, kind of like uh, the law is something that to a degree we discover. You know, we don't write out all the law ahead of time, like don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. We say, don't do this thing. And then we discover all the different ways that you can murder. <laughs> and we've come up with a million ways to kill people. And some are more defensible than others, right? And so we would say, well, on the spectrum of murder, this is first degree and that's involuntary manslaughter, you know, and everything in between. So it's something you discover. And so I think that's true about the image of God as well. It's something that you discover but you know it because the law of God is written on your heart. You know it when you're neglecting the image of God. And so I, I guess I think, I think it's really interesting to learn about these ways of understanding the image of God. And to a degree, then, the people outside the garden, I, I find myself, if they existed, and I think they did, I don't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what they were. Because after Adam and Eve, I believe that all from Adam and Eve— are now 
in the image of God. They have original sin. I am convinced by that argument. Um, and God will judge the world. So I don't, I don't have to know what God did with the people outside the garden before Adam and Eve. Maybe they never fell into sin. Maybe God will judge them. It's his prerogative. Well, we would say there essentially aren't eventually it's like it's like a triangle where eventually those people sort of get cut off like yeah. there, there are none of those left because if because if we could prove mathematically that six thousand years ago uh all human beings living at that time had a common ancestor whether it was adam and eve or any two people then then by now there are none of those people left like so there's not like a tribe somewhere that you know so everyone living on earth would go back to adam and eve so we would all be then under the curse of the fall, but also made in the image of God. So to a degree, it kind of doesn't matter, but we're out of time. Evan, are you saying that being a relationalist is the third definition yes. of being human or being in the image of God, a relationalist? Yes. Yeah. And that's how you relate to God and how you relate to each other? Yes. That's a relationist. Yeah. And the other two are... Structuralist go. and vocationalist? Yes. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to be rude. I'm talk too much. I got to go and I, we got to run. I'm sorry. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for making us in your image. Uh, give us your spirit that we would live more and more into that image every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>